Thanks for joining us for episode six of Herpetological Highlights. Today we are going to be discussing sea turtles, so all the turtles which are... Live in the sea. Yeah, live in the sea, very much. Yeah, it sums it up, doesn't it? Um, my name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as always, is Ben Marshall. And uh, the last couple of weeks in, we've been spending our time reading some of the stuff there is to know about sea turtles. Yeah, certainly not all of the stuff there is to know about sea turtles, because it turns out sea turtles are pretty popular in, in the world of research. Yeah, I'm not, I can't say I was surprised to find it was like a bit of a rabbit warren. I mean, I've learned, I've done a little bit of research on sea turtles in the past, um, but obviously they're kind of charismatic, borderline megafauna, so it's only hmm. natural that they're well represented in and the literature. Are, yeah, they're a good charismatic flagship species for conservation efforts as well. So I've there certainly... is a bit of impetus to get you know, the knowledge base on them is pretty solid. Massively so. I mean, I, you know, in terms of them being charismatic, I've never met a turtle I didn't like. So, I don't think I've ever met a turtle face to face. Well, I suppose in aquariums, but never a... a there's always been glass between me and the turtle. Ah, fair. Yeah. Well, it's quite an experience. I'd recommend it. <laughs> just go out and do it now. <laughs> yeah, just go. <laughs> Forget get the your, podcast. Get your snorkel out and give him a high five. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, well, sea turtles... There are seven species of sea turtle. Did you know that? I did, yeah. Good man. That's one of the things I expressly went out of my way to find out. <laughs> I just thought of it literally just a second ago. I was like, damn, if that comes up, I'm going to look foolish. So what are they? Uh, oh, blimey. Okay. Off the top of your head, come on. Uh, there's one called like the flat the flat sea turtle or something like that. I can't remember that one. Leatherback, Hawks, Bill, Olive Ridley, Green, uh, Loggerhead. Uh, I'm Kemp's Ridley. Kemp's Ridley. I mean, that's the sneaky one. Yeah. What was the other one that I'm talking about? Well, you said flat, flat, flat turtle, flat turtle. <laughs> it's called something. Hang on a minute. The flatback. The flatback. It's literally called a flatback. So I got there six go. out of seven. I, I'm impressed. Yeah. Cheers, man. <laughs> um, Kemp, Kemp Ridley, of course. Um, they're the only two that are in the same genus together. Did you know that as well? I did not, know. Yeah, so Kemp Ridley and Olive Ridley are related more closely than the others, or so it would seem. I don't know that for 100%, but they're in the same genus, regardless. Yeah, sea turtles. Sea turtles. Any other little tidbits for us about sea turtles in general? No. <laughs> no <it's fair. laughs> not a single fact. <laughs> hmm. I mean, the, we could start with the biggest, can't we? Yes. Leverback and get straight into the first paper, straight into a bit of Leverback ecology, and uh, look at a paper by Scott, Bayerstock, Agambui, Bayer, Busamba, Formia, Godley et al., 2017. Spatial temporal variation in ocean current driven hatchling dispersion implications for the world's largest Leverback sea turtle nesting region. Published in Diversity and Distributions. And this one was published this year. It's brand new. Yeah, a lot of the papers and stuff we're going to be talking about today, all very current, very up to date. I know we went a little bit further back than what we usually do in the last episode with a 2009 paper, but this kind of makes up for it. All very cutting edge, all very new and fresh. Yeah, fresh off the press. This one is open access, so if you want to read this one yourself, get online, um, Diversity and Distributions, just Google it and you can find it for yourself and... Probably tell us all the things that we've misunderstood. <laughs> well, hopefully it's not too much. Yeah. Um, so leatherback sea turtles, as you just mentioned, they're massive. They're huge. They're the mm. biggest. They're the biggest sea turtles out there. Um, they get up to two meters long, maybe even a little bit more, um, and seven hundred kilograms, which is just freakishly large. 
They mostly eat jellyfish and sea squirts. I didn't know this, but do you know what you call something that eats jellyfish and sea squirts? Or just things made of that kind of material? It's a gelatophagus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gelatinous and phagus with eat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So they're gelatinivores. Gelatinivores. Yeah, they eat gelatinous food, which I think is hilarious. Yes. Um, Although it's not a lifestyle I'd want to adopt myself. I mean, less chewing would be a, a bonus. Yeah, I tend to like my food to have some level of texture. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. You are quite funny about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so they don't have a bony shell, the, these leatherbacks, that most turtles do. They kind of have a big lump of skin on their back, which is why they're called leatherback turtles. Mm. They're also, along with being the largest turtle, they're also extremely free-moving, which is quite cool. Like, as adults, they tend to go around bigger range than other turtles do. They know this because they did some satellite tracking of them. Huge ranges. I mean, what we're about to talk about is a population based in the Atlantic Ocean, but there have been studies done in the Pacific, and there was one that I followed up and had a little look at that was by uh, Benson et al. in 2011. And they were looking at just how far these turtles can move over the year. And these guys went back and forth across the Pacific. Months at a time, they'd do these massive trans-ocean movements forage over on a different bit of coast, come back a couple of years later to their breeding islands in like Indonesia and areas along there, along the west coast of the Pacific, and back over they go. And it was just phenomenal seeing these, these traces mapped out across the Pacific Ocean and knowing that a turtle made that and has That's repeatedly crazy. made that journey. They're phenomenal creatures. That's crazy. What on earth possesses them? Well, food. <laughs> yeah. If you're hungry, you're going to go to the best place you can eat. Yeah. That's very true. So uh, I would swim quite a long way, actually, for some of those sweet, sweet jellyfish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they're called leatherbacks. uh, And what another thing I like about them, actually, is their name is reflected in their scientific name. They're called Dermachelis coriacea. And uh, Dermachelis is from the Greek word for skin, which is dermos, and chelis, which means turtle. So they're... Skin turtle, and then the skin turtle. Skin turtle, and nice. the specific name is uh, Coracea from the Latin corium, which means leather. So basically, skin turtle leather. Yeah, skin turtle leather. That's nice. I love the descriptive, reflective names for these. Yeah. We always get caught yeah. up on it. It's so cool. Like. We do. It makes it easier to remember as well. Like it's nice. Um, so yeah. So what you were talking about was the behaviour of adult turtles where they yes. had a GPS transmitter stuck onto their back. and they, Sent off into the world. Yeah, they just swim their about, way. do their yeah. business. They don't notice it's there. They can't look back behind them. <laughs> One of the big things about turtles. Turtles can't look up. Yeah. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the fact. So the that's the adults. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about, or at least for this paper, we're going to be talking about the babies. Well, almost not even the babies. No. This is what's quite interesting. This is what you said to me, and it it kind of spanned me out. Yeah. This study is all about turtles, yet the number of turtles involved in the study is basically zero. Yeah. And, well, shall we dive right into it? Well, actually, prior to that, I wanted to say a couple of things about dispersal in general for baby turtles. Yes, go for it. Yeah. um, Dispersal by ocean currents is really important for sea turtles, I learned. This is because it allows them to find places to grow and settle later on. Because, um, obviously, if they just hatch and swim straight out into the sea, the places which make good nesting beaches don't necessarily make good places for turtles to hang out for their whole lives. Yes, hence these big migrations seen in the Pacific as well. That's why they're moving around, is to get to these these feeding sites. Precisely. They they, they have to travel to get what they need. Um, 
So these areas where the babies are coming out is called a rookery. They call them a rookery, which I thought was quite cool. Like, where all the babies hang out. Yeah, I would have liked turtles to have a special name that mm. hasn't been used for other things. Maybe you're right. I just maybe was... not turtlery or something like that. Well, maybe that's because turtlery is like really hard to say, and people would be like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> you know, turtlery. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, so large oceanic dispersal has been documented in loggerhead turtles, which are another species. Uh, they're a little bit smaller, and they actually have um, proper scutes on their shells. Um, but there was a paper by Boyle et al. in 2009 who demonstrated with genetic markers that young turtles that had been found off the shore of Peru had actually originated on Australian beaches. So those turtles, which were loggerheads, swam offshore from Australia, connected with the East Australian Current, which is sort of like the west side South Pacific gyre, if that makes sense. A gyre is a huge spinning current in the ocean. Yes. And that particular one flows in a huge circle around the South Pacific. So those turtles um, hatched off Australia, ended up getting whisked all the way around to Peru. And in that time, they grew from nine centimetres to 60 centimetres. So not only are they... I mean, that's their life. Their life is ocean current life. Yeah, what a phenomenal way to start. There you go, born, you sort of waddle down the beach, bam, ocean current, off you go. 9,000 miles. the time, yeah. next thing you know, you're in Peru. Yeah, on your holidays, except you're not, because you don't, you have to swim back. <laughs> that was a nightmare. It's a tough life. But yeah, that's like, that Boiler Tile paper is one of the only real papers out there about the sort of young life of baby turtles. It's a massive unknown. Well, this is, yeah, this is what they basically say is the primary reason driving this study is to gain a bit more knowledge about these lost years as they, I love as that they phrase said. yeah lost years of turtle life these early juvenile lives where do they go and what are they making use of let's find out exactly yeah <laughs> it's, it, it is it's really cool and I love I love that despite the fact that they are so charismatic they're still so enigmatic like we really don't know what these little little baby turtles are up to yeah so in terms of the methods they used for this paper in creating the baby turtles we just talked about, um, they actually used a modelling software, so it was all on the computer. And virtual turtles. Virtual turtles, allegedly turtles. And they put <laughs> 4 million floats, which represented baby turtles, into the sea over a 47-year period. Into this virtual sea. Into a virtual sea. It's important to note, no floats were dumped in the ocean, especially not 4 million. They all happened on, on the computer. And uh, they, they modelled the period from 1960 to 2007. What's cool about the software is that it accurately models the movements of the floats based on historical data about currents and storms that actually were happening in the sea at that time. Mm. So the baby turtle style floats were kept within 60 centimetres of the sea surface. So that kind of like represents how buoyant a baby turtle is. Yes, it's it's a bit of ocean that they're going to be using during this dispersal time. Precisely. Um, They float essentially um, and they can't can't dive deep because they just keep bobbing back up. Little weak baby turtles. Yeah, exactly. Um, The floats, I I guess the importance of that is so they can breathe, like they don't get bashed around. If it's a storm... They can always get to the surface because mm. they're, they're buoyant. <laughs> it's kind of adorable and a bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are they are um, beholden to the forces of nature this young, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so the floats started off close to shore. They kind of dropped them off semi-randomly uh, within 400 kilometres of where they were hatching out um, from Equatorial Guinea, Gabon and the Democratic Republic of Congo where leatherbacks are known to nest. Not just known to nest... But is, this is actually one of the largest sites for uh, leatherback 
populations and leatherback nesting. So learning where these guys go is pretty critical to a global conservation effort of leatherbacks. Right. Yeah, well, there's meant to be over 40,000 turtle nests a year in, uh, in Gabon, and then an additional 300 to 1,000 in neighbouring countries. Wow. So that's a hell of a lot of nests. That is an awful lot, isn't it? And crazy. hopefully a hell of a lot of turtles, and a hell of a lot of turtles making it out and surviving. And there can always be more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, they simulated, they ran all these simulations, uh, and yeah, they, they sort of tracked where these imaginary turtles were going to end up based on the ocean currents and the storms that they ran into. And um, it's quite interesting. They all ended up in different places, kind of, depending on where they'd hatched out from. Yes, there was some variation in in their the beach where they started and their their end destination. Yeah, yeah. So turtles north of the equator, so that's the babies which were hatching out from Guinea and Gabon. They didn't actually go that far, as it turns out, mm. relatively speaking. Um, they kind of bumped into this north northeasterly current and got washed into the Gulf of Guinea, um, where they pretty much just stayed. They stayed put there. So the Gulf of Guinea is the bit of the Atlantic Ocean nestled in the curve of Africa on the left-hand side, as you look at it on the map, the west side. Um, this is for the listeners, not for you, Ben. I know you know where Gabon is. <laughs> well, now. I've, I've known the left-hand side of a map is quite, a, yeah, <laughs> quite but, an interesting you know, way of, people, of saying west. For me personally, when I envisage a map, I think, oh, yeah, you know, you always look at it in a Eurocentric same way. No one ever flips the map around. You don't look at the or earth. Turn, from, or upside down. Yeah, you don't. Or upside down, yeah. You don't just suddenly start looking at the earth from the inside, like... <laughs> Oh, here's a map of the Earth from the core. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Don't pretend you don't. So, um, yeah, you mean west. Yeah, I mean west. Luckily for them, um, those turtles that ended up in the Gulf of Guinea, it's extremely nutrient-rich because there's loads of upwellings coming up from the deeper ocean. Yes. Um, so those little baby turtles essentially have it completely made. So, uh, yeah, the turtles which originated in the Congo were a different story. Um, so these ones are the ones further south. Mm. Only 5% of them ended up in the Gulf of Guinea with their friends from Guinea and Gabon. Um, instead, these ones drifted on south equatorial currents, which, despite the name, actually took them west, not south. And uh, they went westward towards northeast Brazil, which yeah, is... Yes, they got, in, they got whisked away right out there, didn't they? They got... Absolutely. They got taken. Yeah, it's a hell of a way. Um, and they stopped somewhere between South America and Africa, just in the ocean. Uh, for what reason... I don't know. But yeah, they didn't end up in the nice cushy Gulf of Guinea, which I suppose for their conservation is probably quite a good thing that they're ending up in two different places. Oh, definitely. A greater diversity of places means if one gets hit, one might provide a bit of a buffer against a sudden you know, event or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about why they might, why they are being swept out there. I mean, I suppose that's just down to currents. But there is also, along with them being swept out there, there is evidence of higher levels of ocean production along that way as well. There is a bit of the upwelling and stuff found along that coast of Africa is being moved out there along with them to a certain extent. So it's not like they're being dumped in the in the deep ocean with <laughs> nothing to eat. There is still food and sustenance for them out there. Yeah. You know, they're not <laughs> they're not a doomed lost cause. <laughs> yeah, they're not just getting whisked away. Yeah. Well yeah, I mean it would be really, really ridiculous if, you know, that all the turtles from one beach were getting whisked off and killed. There's just you know, it wouldn't make any sense. It would, they wouldn't be any coming back. Well, yeah, you'd hope not, at least. Well, hope not. I mean, you'd hope that they would learn. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So uh, one thing, one other thing the authors noticed was that over time, the hatchlings were exposed to different drifts. Um, 
currents are always changing and in more recent times there was more turtles heading west which kind of highlights the necessity to use long data sets when you look at things like this because we've said this in the past where you know we said it with the day geckos didn't we if you you know if you see all the day geckos in one tree one year, it doesn't mean they're there every year. It might exactly. just be a, yes. a good year you, for guava or whatever it is. Yeah, you've got to have a good representative time set to know that this pattern's not a fluke, basically. Yeah. Also important with turtles, if there's a lag between, you know, whatever juvenile being born and going out and living to its life, and that lag between it being, it dispersing and then returning however many years later to that same nesting site for the next generation. Intergenerational differences could be significant and you need to catch all of that variability to know how good or how healthy mm. the population is overall because what you don't want is just to pick one generation see what how that generation does and base all your you know conclusions just mm. on that yeah absolutely because it could just be an off year or yeah. just a good year yeah there could be so much going on i mean the pelagic so the open ocean ecosystem is so vast with so many different stresses and foods and you know myriad things going on yes all on different time scales Mm. how they interplay is going to make a difference yeah so um these findings could also be important conservation you kind of mentioned that briefly earlier yeah Um, the turtles are going to face different threats depending on where they end up um so coastal regions like for example the gulf of guinea they are likely to encounter a lot more human wastes like plastic bags and fishing nets that we'll come on to later on Mm. Um, whereas out at sea they're more likely to be caught in long lines and things like that so that's another sort of element to this and um, actually the movements of adult leatherbacks have already contributed to the marine protected areas around Gabon yeah this is something that the, the Benson paper brought up was if you know the seasonal movements of turtles you can shape your fishing policy to avoid turtle damaging practices during certain times of the year You don't have to outright ban some things, but you can just tailor them so you give the turtles an opportunity to, you know, breed, come and go, forage, whatever they need at that time of year without coming into conflict with humans, or at least reducing that to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that's definitely the future. I mean, what a fantastic compromise. You don't have to come up to whatever fisherman and say, no, you can't fish like that. Yeah. You say, hey, just don't do it for these two months. That seems more reasonable for everybody. It does, and then you save money because... I mean, it's just great world, isn't it? You don't have to try and police unachievable conservation goals and things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this paper kind of, it is a really big advancement in turtle conservation. And hopefully lots of other people are going to do similar things for all the other species of turtle that are out there and in different areas as well. Yes, that's what would be nice is to see it done again for different populations. I don't think it has been yet, but... There was was another paper by Eckhout in 2002 that just gave a little... It was records of juvenile leatherbacks around the world and this Gabon area and the uh, the bay there was one of them and had two records there, but the little records in other places across these different breeding areas. It'd be lovely to see how those ones are affected in similar or different ways and to see how they'd interplay. Because the ones on the other side of the Atlantic, and I'm sure that those guys are coming into contact with each other if they're being swept across from... Uh, the southern one, the southern areas we've just talked about, yeah, and how those two populations might interplay. Mm. That'd be really cool. Yeah, an extra extra facet, like um, you know, all their con specifics. Well, exactly. Like, I kind mean, of imagine the... it's kind of an amazing thing to imagine two turtles from like opposite sides of an ocean colliding yeah. in the middle, like weird. Because we're talking about a globally distributed species here. Yeah, 
So if you're talking about conserving them, you've got to think on global scales yeah. and any lessons you apply locally should be thought about globally and vice versa and trying to create an overall, I suppose, global conservation. Yeah, massively. Uh, whatever. Uh, whatever the right, right word is. Program. That's the one. Program. Yeah. <laughs> got there in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Total conservation is definitely really exciting. So yeah, hopefully lots more to come in the future. Oh, I think so. So let's move on to our second paper, shall we? Mm. Um, this one is by Fam Rodriguez, Dauphin, Carico, Frias, Vanderpair, Otero, et al. It's another one with loads of authors. Yeah. Uh, published in 2017, brand new. Plastic ingestion in oceanic stage loggerhead sea turtles, Coretta Coretta, off the North Atlantic subtropical gyre. This is from the Marine Pollution Bulletin. Uh, and like I said, yeah, published this year, another brand new one. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we went for... Well, you'll see in the next this paper and the next paper, we wanted to do a couple of papers about some of the, I suppose, threats and negative impacts on turtles and herpetofauna generally, because it's quite easy to just focus on the cool natural ecology stuff of these species without getting into how they're doing in the world right now. And that's Something that sometimes wildlife documentaries fall afoul of is presenting all the most wonderful and amazing things about these creatures and not actually the everyday life and impact we are having upon them. So we've gone very hard the other way. Yeah, I think it's good. We've started off with some interesting facts, but now we need to we need to get down to the nitty gritty, basically. Yes, here's some hard, real world scenarios here. Yeah, so um, plastic, it's very bad news. Let's 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 roll this back to something that is hot, hot off the presses. Published thirty first, no, sorry, nineteenth of July, this year, from Gaia et al. twenty seventeen, which is just a big, well, not a particularly big paper, but a big summary on plastics. What happened? What's happening? What's going to happen? Basically, what what have we created? What is this monster we've unleashed? And yeah. You want some huge numbers? 7,800 million metric tonnes of plastic has been produced since the 1950s. Jesus. Well. Yeah, so basically there's two papers that I was looking at. So one I just mentioned and another one by Jambeck um, et al. in 2015. And, you know, looking through both of these, the numbers are just... The problem is you're dealing with numbers so damn big, you can't really... You can't put a picture in your mind of how much plastic that is. It's just beggar's belief. So... That number I said, 7,800 million metric tonnes. Half of that has been produced in the past 13 years alone. That's absolutely So it's an incredible ramping up of plastic production. Only 4 million metric tonnes of all that plastic is actually biodegradable or bio, uh, bioproduced. And only 9% has actually ever been recycled. And only 10% of that 9% that's been recycled has been recycled more than once. Blimey. So, so really all this all this perceived effort into plastic recycling is just hardly anything compared to the the amount of plastic being produced. And I think the real well there's two real crimes here. One is that the huge bulk of that plastic, the actual products it's made for, have lifespans of less than a year. Mm. It's mostly on packaging and stuff that is temporary and just and just gone. So yeah. it's not even like you're you're making something that lasts. You're making it to be disposed of, really. It's got yeah. such short, useful life to it. 
It's phenomenal. <clears throat> the, the, I find it really shocking. And what a lot of people don't realise as well is that having a Coke bottle floating in the sea is obviously bad. But then you get into this whole thing oh, it just of goes on. microplastics. So when plastics degrade, which quite often happens on the beach, UVB radiation gets to them if they're washed up on the beach. They end up getting microscopic cracks. They split. They turn into teeny tiny pieces of microplastic. And they're a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, they're still inert at this point. They're not degrading. They're, no, just, they're just breaking down smaller. into smaller bits. And yeah. um, when these plastics are really, really small like that, um, they actually attract what are called POPs, persistent organic pollutants. So these persistent organic pollutants, which are everywhere in the ocean, they're mostly from runoff from things like insecticides and pesticides and also like some um, industrial processes. They're just, yeah. they're just these really bad chemicals that float around in the ocean, but at low concentrations, so they're not really doing too much harm. Trouble is, Until. they love sticking on to pieces of microplastic. And then you've got yourself this tiny little toxic thing, which happens to be the exact same size as loads of different things which already exist in the food chain, like plankton and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they. it might be that it looks like a bit of tiny jellyfish, which... Or it gets caught up in, you know, bycatch. Yeah. It's stuck to a tiny bit of jellyfish. Exactly, yeah. And these, you know, these all these organisms are eating these things. Um, so the, the plastic kind of cleans the seawater of these uh, persistent organic pollutants, but then the animals eat the plastic and it affects them never mm. negatively. Um, and in terms of plastic going into the sea, um, the Jampak paper estimates there was 4.8 million tonnes in 2010 alone. That's an absurd amount of plastic. Yeah, I mean, as I say, these are numbers that are so big. I, what does 4.8 million tonnes of plastic even look like? I can't imagine that. What we need to do is work out how much whales weighs, and then we'll have an accurate representation. Because <laughs> you know everyone always says, <laughs> the, the, the size of whales! Yes. Yeah. We need to work out how much whales weighs, and then we'll understand what this plastic means. How on earth do you work? Oh. Well, how deep do you go? It doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, so the other thing about this blooming microplastic stuff is that they now know it bioaccumulates, which is where subsequent trophic levels get more and more of it. So like mercury, when little tiny fish get eat mercury and then the big fish eat the mercury laden small fish and then the dolphins eat the big fish with even more mercury because they eat all the small fish with mercury mm. and then the people eat the dolphins and they wonder why they're gone crazy it's because they ate all that mercury without realizing yeah the same thing happens with microplastics um there was a paper by Serdaval et al in 2012 and they showed that uh, tiny little pieces of polystyrene were actually transported through an aquatic food chain um through water fleas no, through first of all through algae, then to water fleas, and then to carp, and um, it actually affected the behaviour of these fish and the way they metabolise fat. And these are actually even smaller than microplastic; these are nanoplastics, and they can cross into the you know they they do things that only yeah, things cross, on a molecular level guts, are supposed they? to do. Yeah, they can they can cross membranes Which and is, get into the bloodstream of animals. It's terrifying. Like if you ever wanted more evidence of, of the Anthropocene, <laughs> look at plastics. Global impact, ubiquitous, and almost impossible to get rid of. Yeah, it is. I mean, it it truly is quite terrifying. Um, you know, people think of the trouble of plastic being littered beaches, and that's terrible, and those images are really shocking. Yes, but actually, well, this is what I'm getting at. It's hard to picture yeah. the impacts of plastics yeah. because it's happening on such a microscopic scale at times yeah and it's hard to hard to envisage it is it really truly is um 
so yeah, back to the back to the paper, I guess. They um, the idea of this paper was to look at plastic ingestion in loggerhead sea turtles when they were out at sea. Loggerhead sea turtles, we should, we should probably talk about a little bit. They're quite cool. Yeah, you, I mean, you've done a little bit. Of, you've you've met a loggerhead. Yes, I have actually met numerous loggerhead sea turtles. As it happens, <laughs> um, I did some volunteering for the Marine Turtle Research Group in Northern Cyprus, and um, we excavated nests and yeah. Had a little play with some baby sea turtles. <laughs> Pretty nice. Obviously, all for, all for a good cause. Strictly science. Yeah, um, yeah let them go. Um, yeah, the way their conservation project works is they um, they essentially build a protective barrier over nests that they discover. And um, they've been incredibly successful in reducing the amount of predation by stray dogs. Mm. Whereas before... A re- I can't think of the numbers now, but a really high percentage of these nests were being predated by dogs. And now it's it's down to hardly any at all. And um, all due to the efforts of volunteers who tirelessly patrol the beaches, watching for the mother sea turtles laying their nests, build a cover over it, and then go back and check it periodically Chase later the on. dogs away with sticks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not quite that, but yeah. Uh, really awesome project to be a part of. Yeah, really cool bit of volunteering that I did back in 20... 15 that was but yeah the loggerheads are quite cool when they're babies they're really sweet as well because they're really dark colored mm. so the where i was we had green sea turtles and also loggerheads and i preferred the loggerheads just because they they look kind of mean they were like dark colored <laughs> they had like sort of lighter highlights on the edges of their scutes and they were just really cool little creatures um but yeah unfortunately as we learned from this paper they are under threat from plastic yes they are Quite significantly, along with actually seven, over 700 other species have been documented ingesting marine-born plastics. Well, I mean, 700 species is a lot, and that's probably oh, and a that's, fraction that's of everything what... from tiny to huge as well. Mm. It's... And 700 is only a fraction of what yeah. realistically are doing it, because only 700 have been probably checked. Um... <clears throat> so this paper aims to explore a little bit about plastic ingestion for loggerheads. It's based on a population that is making use of the area surrounding the Azores, which are west of Portugal and Spain, relatively central in the Atlantic there. Yeah, and these are, these are turtles that hatch predominantly from rookeries on the east coast of North America. Yes. Um, they journey across the North Atlantic subtropical gyre, and they end up, like you say, around the Azores, which is this archipelago of small islands. Yeah. And the study is basically going out to beaches and coastal areas, finding, well, rather unfortunately, dead turtles performing a necropsy. Necropsy? Necropsy, yeah. It is necropsy. Yeah, necropsy on the turtles, uh, examining their stomach, esophagus and intestines and basically documenting all the plastics or lack of plastics, perhaps, they've ingested. Sadly, though, it was mostly... It, observing the plastics and not no, the lack of almost completely observing the plastics wasn't it yeah it was 83 percent yeah 20 out of 24 yeah. wasn't it so 83 percent yeah and that was turtles younger turtles larger turtles big small female male it there was a representative for every life stage and um i was gonna say style of turtle but that's not the right <laughs> word. every style every style of turtle <laughs> they, so what they did was they counted and weighed all the debris, didn't they, that they got out of these turtles' guts. And, and categorised it, yeah. And it was horrible, to be honest, this paper. Some of the photos were truly harrowing. Yeah, I would recommend not going and looking up the photos. 
Yeah, I unless mean, you want to look at the inside of a turtle filled with plastic. Yeah, I thought. I think maybe people should. I mean, the photos aren't all that grisly. It's just that one of the. There's a turtle who had eaten a fishing hook, presumably from a long line, because I mm. think the Portuguese fisheries go out into these. Yeah, that's what they suggested was a Portuguese long line. Yeah. And um, the inside of a turtle's throat, by the way, is really cool. It's covered in spikes, which is awesome. Are it's they kind of like horrifying in its own way? <laughs> yeah. Are they sort of to guide the food? gently down do they all kind of what's the name for that peristalsis is that peristalsis i have no idea yeah i think it is where all the bits and bobs squeeze and move and push things down mm. i think they've kind of got an exaggerated version of what we have like philia yes exactly yeah <clears throat> and what's happened to this poor turtle it really actually found this very sad it ate a fishing hook but that was only the beginning of its troubles because the fishing hook wouldn't have killed it but what killed it was all the bits of plastic which it subsequently ate accumulated above the fishing hook in its esophagus mm. so eventually because it had this blocked esophagus it starved to death yeah i mean it was a, a culmination of, of horrible circumstances for it it does raise an interesting point though about the kind of multitude of threats to these turtles combining yes yeah i mean this is this is also something that should be mentioned with this paper is that they could not directly attribute any of the deaths to plastic ingestion no, that's true. Which is quite crucial. But they do say that there is no evidence that they're, one way or another, whether they're, uh, whether this is impacting the turtle's fitness. You've got to kind of suspect that it does, because here's a turtle with, a, you know, up to 15... Oh, gosh. What's the maximum amount of plastic? Seven grams, wasn't it? Yeah, up to, up to seven grams of plastic in them. I mean, I think it was an average. Average was one gram. And with making a sort of fifteen plastic items in each turtle, roughly was was what they found. I mean, it's got to it's got to be having some sort of impact having yeah. that sort of foreign, non biodegradable material in your system. Yeah, and it, if nothing else, it's reducing the amount of food in their stomach. But and they're expending energy to eat it. Yeah, if they see a bit of plastic and they make an effort to eat that plastic, it gives them no energy you know they're not gaining anything from that but they are expending energy to catch it yeah yeah the only one who it may more likely have given been direct cause of death is that one who got the hook caught and then the plastic later yes absolutely um yeah one thing they actually mentioned is that uh loghead sea turtles actually have quite a wide digestive tract so ordinarily they're actually able to pass plastic mm. but like you say you know all these negative things are still building up and if they're ingesting like i said earlier those um those pops, the organic pollutants. Yes, I mean, they're bringing in, well, yes, foreign horrible toxins into their body because they don't want that. Interesting you say about their digestive tract being wider. Had a sort of thought, okay, so we've got this for loggerheads. How do other sea turtles compare? I didn't do a massive amount of reading. I just went out and searched for a review paper that basically went straight to that, that question for me and gave me a relatively... You know, did the hard work. Yeah, that's what we like. <laughs> and gave me a relatively straightforward answer. And that There's was actually by, one out there. That's amazing. Yeah, Schuler et al. 2014. They did a sort of summary of a lot of bits. Um, I just went for the, the plastic ingestion. And it seems like green and leatherback turtles are doing the worst off with plastic ingestion. Uh, with Kemp's, Kemp's Ridley and loggerheads being mm, not having as big a negative impact on. They did say hawksbills look bad, but they only had a small sample size to go by. So there's still some questions to be answered there. Right. But, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't 
paint a great picture that there are turtles out there doing worse than loggerheads when log eighty three percent of these loggerheads have plastics in them. Yeah, it's really shocking. How representative this is of another part of the world is another question that perhaps needs to be answered. Yeah, I didn't go looking for other papers looking no at different places, but again, this is going to be a global issue because plastics are being taken around the world on ocean currents, the same ones that turtles are using. It's not a small local issue that you can just protect one area and you'll be safe. It has to be a global solution. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the most common thing that was found to have been ingested by these tarsals was actually um, white and transparent plastic fragments. Mm, polyethylene sort of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Um, which, it might be because those things are disproportionately represented in plastic litter. The most common thing is like carrier bags. Plastic and bits bags, of plastic. Yeah. But um, it also could be down to the fact that jellyfish resemble those. I mean, it's quite a famous example. When you're a sea turtle bobbing around, if you see a carrier bag floating in the open ocean, it looks much like a jellyfish. It does. Uh, and that's thought to be one of the reasons why they eat them so often. Yeah, which is a real... I mean, this is sort of what adds to the tragedy of this whole situation, is how unnecessary are plastic bags as an item? They have minimal shelf life that people actually use them for, but in terms of environmental life, they're there for years and years beyond. And, that you know, how, how useless and unnecessary are they? Yeah, well, thankfully, right our government's there. kind of put, put in this charge, which has reduced their consumption by 85%, but I don't know why they can't just do an outright well, ban. Well, they're getting there. Germany's done an outright ban, as far as I understand. Yeah, there's like five or six African countries as well, Rwanda, Rwanda Kenya. The momentum's getting there, but it would be nice if it was already there. Yeah. But that being said, there are people out there working on actual solutions to this that might bring us back from the brink as such. There's a paper by Bombelli et al. in 2017, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, where they introduced wax moth caterpillars, and they can actually start breaking down plastic bags and polyethylene into a ethylene glycol, which can actually be broken down and isn't toxic and they were far so- easier to deal with, basically. Yeah. And that was phenomenal, because that was changing... You know, other systems that they had that showed that you could break down polyethylene took months and months. This was bringing it down to a month or a matter of days. These moths and whatever whatever system they were using was phenomenally more effective. Way, way better. Yeah. You know, it hasn't been... I don't think the exact mechanism has been worked out specifically, but it is an avenue of research which is being done and shows... Pretty hefty promise. That's really good. Uh, I remember reading that article very excitedly. Yeah. Like, really, really good news. It's good. There's definitely hope. There's definitely hope. There, yeah, <clears> it's <throat> not all doom, or gloom, doom and gloom, but my but, gosh, there really has to be a serious effort to prevent it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've pretty much gone through that, do you? I think so. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's so, yeah, long story short, my crew. Impacts. Yeah. yeah. Plastics and turtles don't mix, but hopefully we're as a species are going about things in semi the right direction mm. you know sign some petitions do some stuff like that you know we can do we they can do, exactly there change. is you know there, there there is a movement to fix it yeah. please say no to straws straws perform no function if you can do one thing for well, turtles say no to straws, straws. Oh, well, i'm gonna post the video of the turtle with a straw stuck in his nose i thought i was gonna bring that up yeah. to you because that's one that you've you've pulled oh. out for all sorts of education purposes in previous previous times and it is the amount of children I've scarred with that video. Well, yeah, but if it gets the point across... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really does. I mean, it, it breaks me down every single time. It's horrible. It's, it's tough. It's a video of a sea turtle that's 
presumably eaten a plastic straw and then tried to vomit it back out of its nose and it just is stuck in there and this thing is in serious it, it's hating life it really is hating yeah, life but for, for a straw yeah for, for a like, one time use product that's what I'm saying it, it, it doesn't perform any <laughs> talk function talk about unsustainable use of resources it doesn't perform any function either like your mouth is designed to be good at sucking things up millions of years of evolution have provided you with a natural straw well there's new I mean there's straws made out of bamboo and stuff there's alternative products no, out I won't there stand, if you I won't if stand you really need a straw yeah. I think any I, I mean fair play to these people who are making alternatives but I think Making an alternative gives the straw too much credit. They do nothing. Okay, a pina colada might be slightly challenging to drink. Wait, so wait is, a bit. Sip it. I bit. mean, we're getting into something much bigger here, and that's just products that are just unnecessarily disposable. I mean, straws are something you, you hammer in on because they're bloody everywhere. But, you know, coffee shop stuff, little lids on the top of your coffee, stuff like that. It's and the coffee cup. It's all made from plastic. Those are made from, like, composite plastics most of the time. Yeah, some of them are getting better at making cardboard, but there's still so much being used, which are one-use things. Plastic knives and forks, all this stuff. It is not a luxury you can afford when it does this much damage to the environment. Yeah, it really doesn't perform any function. There's no, no need to it. Take a coffee cup with you. Don't use a straw. Put a fork in your bag. Yeah. Buy, buy a reusable plastic water bottle if you need one. Yeah. Or metal. Or metal. What, you know. Yeah. The point <clears throat> is, move towards products that have a longer lifespan. Yeah, absolutely, massively. Anyway, we'll get off our combined soapbox because we're, we're as bad as each <laughs> yeah, other. We're as bad as each other on that. Um, yeah, like, like we said anyway, there's hope and I think it's good to quantify the risks because it allows people to understand them and then you can move forward from a position of knowledge. Yes, it, it come well. It's a very geography thing to do. Is trying to link scales of small scale personal choice to global uh, trend. Yes, and if you don't do that, you don't know how these things really matter. No, absolutely not. So, with that, should we move on to another turtle calamity? Yes, Lauritsen, Dixon, Casella, Brost, Hardy, Pearson, Mayland, Wallace, and Witherington in 2017. Impact of the deep water horizon oil spill on loggerhead turtles, Coretta Coretta, nest densities in northwest Florida. And as was published in Endangered Species Research, as part of a special edition they did, an open access special edition they did, all about the impact of deep water horizon on the marine life in the Gulf of Mexico and surrounding areas. There's a whole bunch of as I say, the whole volume is all about it. There's loads of papers, stuff about dolphins, multiple things about different turtles and different bits of their lives. And we've honed in on just one of those, yeah. the nesting. So for those of you that don't know, I remember it being on the news a lot. It was a huge deal. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill was the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum industry. Some people call it the BP oil spill because it was all their fault. And that's fair. But yeah, it was huge. Bigger than... Well, I think they were, were labelled grossly negligent, I believe the official terminology is. I mean, I've been called negligent and, that, you know, I feel bad about that. But no one's ever referred to me as grossly negligent. <laughs> I'd feel sick to my core. Your, your negligence is gross and makes <laughs> yeah. me feel crazy. You're like slovenly in your negligence. <laughs> you animals. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's bad. It was terrible. And... Um, yeah, it, it contaminated 112,000 square kilometres of surface waters and 2,100 kilometres of shoreline, Yeah, which happened to overlap with five different species of sea turtle, 
This study focuses on the effect it had on the nesting of loggerhead turtles. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking scale, it's again, it's something where the numbers, you just, they're so big you can't get a grip on them. 134 million gallons of oil. There you go. Throw that in the sea over 87 days. If you want to get a little bit of an idea of what this looked like, if you, you know, haven't and are not familiar with what an oil spill looks like, there is a link in the show notes to the North American, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. There's a little uh, piece I've written about it with different photographs documenting the uh, the timeline of the spill and the cleanup. Pretty good images and gives you a rough idea of how grim this whole spill is. So have a look at these photos. This oil spill occurred between April and September 2010, and it contaminated nearshore waters and beaches um, in northwest Florida, Alabama, all these states along sort of the south coast of America. Um, yeah, it wasn't just the fact that there was all this oiling going on, though, which affected the turtles. This was one thing that the paper yes. touched on. So obviously the oil itself was really, really damaging. But then in addition, there was the beach clean. So there was loads of people on the beaches where they nest. And there was also oil being mechanically removed from sand. I mean, I don't know what that process all is. These, all these processes all working in tandem to try and clean up the oil. But the, off, you know, the yeah. negative is that you've got people and disturbance and big machinery. Lights. Lights that we know from... Uh, with, in relation to total breeding, is a big problem with that. Yeah. Females won't use a heavily lit beach they tend to back off and then come back another year and delay breeding and things like that and the lights confuse the youngsters as well yeah i don't know if there's any papers on that but anecdotally that seems to be the case yes and there's a famous uh bbc documentary ah uh, yes where that's they, right. they wander they go, off into I mean, they've I've, got the footage of them wandering through the uh, town and falling in drains and horrific things I, like that. I personally when i was in cyprus went up to a green turtle nest that had hatched the night previously and i followed numerous tracks like hundreds of meters the wrong yeah. way from the sea and there was a house on the you know what was it the house i don't know but they some of those guys go the wrong way and the lights probably aren't helping yes so yeah, this sort of multitude of threats once again it's not just one threatening these turtles it is a combination and the paper is trying to work out well two things they're taking a whole backlog of data that had been recorded over pre loads of previous years all the way back to 1997 on all these turtle nesting sites along Northwest Florida and Southwest Florida, see how total populations and nests have done over time, and trying to work out how much of an impact all this 2010 well, nonsense. Nonsense. I was going to say nonsense. Nonsense is the word. Has happened. You know, it happened on these Northwest Florida beaches, and see how much of an impact, how many turtle nests were lost as a result. And once again, like previous paper, this is a modelling effort. So they've got all this data to rely on, and they build a model that predicts how many nests there are by pulling in environmental factors and whatever variables you want from both the southwest Florida sites and northwest Florida sites to be able to predict how many nests there should have been and compared to what there actually was. Yeah, so they kind of, yeah, they just basically create an imaginary world where there's the perfect amount of nests with and without this scenario of yes. a humongous oil spill. Yes. The actual details of that model are far more complicated than what I just said but I'm not going into the details of how to write a model, partly because I think it'd be quite dry, and secondly, it's quite hard to understand. Yeah. I... <laughs> but what they found uh, was that, yes, loggerhead nest densities were reduced by the oil spill. Yes. 
43.7% on the three Northwest Florida beaches compared with previous and subsequent years at those beaches and based on sort of trends that were existing. So um, as it turns out, the oil spill did. It reduced the nest density by close to half. Yeah, which is a pretty big deal. So only half (laughs) of the turtles which would have nested without oil spill actually managed to nest in their model. Yes, whether that's in delaying or they were... You know, harmed by direct uh, direct impacts to the oil, they don't go into because that's a whole other study and a whole other thing to work out is actually relative mortality to oil. I think there is actually a paper in the whole bulk special edition that goes into direct impacts of oil on turtles and how that affects their chemistry and all all that. But that's tough reading. Tough reading, very biological, less ecological, and also <laughs> quite emotionally quite draining. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> not only could they estimate the actual number of nests they had and how that was an influence they could extrapolate that to sort of density of nests along the coast so what they should have been is around 1.52 nests per kilometer that's what would have been expected in 2010 but instead they got a density of 0.857 big reduction in density and that also means that once you all this is based on beaches that have been surveyed in the past and not the entire coast because that would be a huge undertaking, constantly surveying the entire coast for turtles. So you have this, this estimate based on one beach, or several beaches as it is across southwest Florida, and you can extrapolate out and work out how many nests were possibly lost across the entire length of the oil spill and the oil uh, mitigation or, or cleanup operations. And they estimated that around 251 nests were absent that should have been filled in 2010 across that part of the coast. So the sea turtles, the sea turtles took a pretty dramatic hit. But was it not the case that um, in their graph uh, they do bounce the back? Years pre- yeah, the years afterwards they seem to just like there, shoot up. There is some some level of recovery, definitely. I mean, I'm not sure if shoot up is shoot up relative to how bad 2010 was, but they within. They're in two, two and a half years. They're getting back up to yeah, where you'd hope they are. 2011, they kind of look like they're back. I mean, to be honest, 2010, they're only slightly below normal bounds. But then 2011, they're back well within normal bounds. And then 2012 is a particularly good year. Best since 97 that they've got. Yeah, this is, I mean, bringing up the whole point that 2011 is within normal bounds. This was what was something critical to these, this big backlog of data they had and this modelling effort is they could work out what normal variation actually was. Because there's one thing saying, oh, there were less turtles this year. There's another thing saying this is an abnormally low level of turtles Long this year. Long data sets, just like we were saying. Exactly. Because it could have been a fluke. And in this case, it is a fluke. But because there's a very, very clear mechanism there, you can say, start making... Uh, yeah, you can infer really that it was because it. Yeah. of the oil spell. Definitely. Another important point, this bounce back. Is it a bounce back with turtle populations or is it simply a bounce back because turtles that would have bred in 2010 have just delayed to years after? That's what I was wondering yeah. as well. Yeah. It how could how be do delayed. these lag times play into these turtle populations? Mm. Well, in, in very interesting stuff and uh, you know, hard hard facts about the fact that Deepwater Horizon seemingly wasn't good for turtles. <laughs> <laughs> newsflash. Yeah, newsflash. If you, I mean, <laughs> don't I don't know how I'd cope. If it was suddenly all my bits and bobs were covered in oil, it'd be entirely impractical. 
And there's a lot of other stuff you can do for turtles. There's like the Society for the Protection of Turtles. There's numerous organisations um, you can donate to. What's, what's so good seeing all these papers out here and all these different names and all these papers? There is a good cohort of marine biologists out there trying to make a difference and doing critical research like we've just discussed and trying to work out what's going on because if you don't know what's going on, you're never going to react to it. Yeah. And here we are. Open access articles, anybody can read them, make a very clear case that turtles are being quite briefly impacted by various human activities. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like we've gone quite heavily into the risks which turtles face, but I think it's really difficult to discuss sea turtles and enjoy them without an awareness of that. You know, you don't, like you said earlier, you don't want to start sugarcoating something. No. Because, I mean, these are, you know, these are aquatic reptiles. They've been around for millions and millions and millions of years. Oh, I know. It would be an absolute tragedy if we're the thing that wipes them out. Yeah. Something that should be conscious and aware of what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing. But, um, yeah, hopefully it won't come to that. No. Hopefully we're making not. The right, we're going the right way about turtles, I think. There's lots of research and yeah. uh, it's looking pretty positive. We're, we're getting there. So we have learned about the dispersion of baby leatherbacks. We've gone into the loggerheads eating plastics and then the impact of the deep water horizon oil spill on loggerhead nesting now it's time for the fabled species of the bi-week yeah the species of the bi-week yes so in keeping with our turtle special we've gone for a turtle sadly there are only seven species of sea turtle, and a new one has not just recently been described, so we couldn't spotlight one of those, which would have been cool. We that could have done have the Kemp awesome. Ridley, that was an enigma anyway, most people probably wouldn't have heard of that, I don't know. But instead we've gone for a freshwater turtle, and mm. this one is the freshwater turtle known as Elsea flaviventralis, and this comes from a paper by Thompson and Georges, 2016, a new species of freshwater turtle of the genus Elsea Testudinata Pleurodira chelidae from the Northern Territory of Australia. This was published in Zootaxa. And the full text is available online. If you just Google it, you'll find it. It's up there. It's not open source, but it's up there. Yeah, it's not open access. It's a shame. But, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah, so this species is called Elsea flaviventralis, a.k.a. the yellow-bellied snapping turtle. Yellow-bellied snapping turtle. It's not because it's cowardly. Ah. It actually has a yellow belly. I mean... It could also be cowardly, though. It could also be cowardly. I've heard they're shy, but cowardly is probably a step. Yeah, shy and cowardly are not really synonyms, are they? No, not at all. Uh, but yeah, it's got a yellow belly, and that's what flavi ventralis means. Flavi yellow, ventralis, ventral, belly. Straight to the point. Straight yeah. to the point, yeah. Um, it's actually distinguishable from its closest relative, um, Elsaia dentata, which has some black on the belly, um, a.k.a. the plastron, which is the bottom of the turtle. So I think one thing that we've brought up in previous um, new species stuff is giving an exact location or not. These are guys that opted to give that down to a GPS coordinate. Whether that is right or not, we've discussed in previous things we won't go into, but it, I felt it was worth highlighting that this is another paper that does it. Whether these guys are going to be particularly impacted by the pet trade or, or by collectors, hmm, I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe not. They're not exactly the most charming looking of turtles. They've got quite a peculiar face. Yeah, they have. They've got this weird, like, pointy nose, and then they've got kind of a couple of horny bits on the shell. But, and also, I think one of the reasons that there probably wasn't such a big deal to give a 
geographic location is because they're actually like massively widespread. Yes. But they just they just found them in that point. They kind of from this they also inferred that like a big area was actually populated by these turtles. So one This is the far north point of Australia. Have we mentioned that? No, uh, maybe. No. I don't think I did. Yeah, they're really at the top. Really at the top of Australia there. (laughs) Yeah There is a good map they supply that that show Not left, not right up. Up. They're up. They're on the upper of the Australia, of course. Up up in the mountains. No, to the north of Australia for people who want to read a map. If you've experience with maps, call them what you call it whatever you want. Fine. <laughs> but the map they supply gives a nice breakdown of where all the different members of the genus can be found. And there's sort of I did sort of I wanna understand a little bit more about how they're separated and had a look at drainage basins for northern Australia. And I thought I was a shoo-in for finding something. Oh, yeah, perfect. It will just be down drainage basin. They're aquatic animals. They're probably not going to be climbing over big hills or anything like that. I can't imagine a turtle coming on a massive hill adventure. <laughs> be great, Phil. Uh, it, it's not too separate from drainage basins. It's not a perfect match, but there might be something to it. Certainly, if, if you look at members outside of Australia, in southern Indonesia and those sorts of islands... And there you see there's a good separation between a species in the north and a species in the south separated by this this mountain. It's quite a nice classic example. This of is on a, Papua. A biogeographical boundary, yeah, on, on that island. Which separates Elias Elsea Schultzai from Elsea Rodini and Branda Horstai. Yeah, and I just thought that was a nice little, little case study for a biogeographical barrier. It is deeply satisfying to see those things in action on a map. Yeah, well, you see it, and it's, it's blatantly clear that there's a massive mountain range in between them. They, yeah, they evolved to be different. Yeah. Mm, very cool. And um, while we're on the subject of other species in the genus, did you notice that one of them was called Elsea Irwini? Named after Steve Irwin. Almost. It's oh. actually named... It's actually hard to get any information about that turtle because um, it was described in a non-peer-reviewed magazine called Monitor uh, by a guy called Can, who then later published it again in a book entitled Australian Freshwater Turtles. Right. So these are both things I couldn't actually get hold of. So it's so, hard to verify the origin yeah, of the name. Yeah, well, I got some information. I mean, they referred to the species in this paper, and I got a load of information off Reptile Database. So, you know, it seems like it's probably legit. I can't say 100%. But anyway, regardless, I read on Wikipedia the story. <laughs> I know, and it's not, it's not legit, but I like it, you know. Well, it can be legit. Warning, not science. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it can be got, legit. It's just got to be yeah. taken with a big pinch of salt. A big pinch of salt. Basically, get a load of salt and then have a pinch of Wikipedia. I think it's probably the best yes. way to go about it. A nice bowl of salt. Yeah. But, um, yeah, according to those two sources, um, their Irwin family was on a fishing trip. And Bob Irwin, who's Steve's dad, caught a turtle on his fishing line. And Steve said, crikey, that's a new species of turtle there. And then he sent it off to a herpetologist some pictures, who then later came back. And Can wound up describing a species with um, Steve Irwin as its kind of co-describer, which I thought was pretty cool. Okay. Named after, presumably, his dad then. Yeah, seemingly his dad, maybe a bit of Steve as well, because they've got the same name. So Yeah, but that would be bad form. That would be very bad form, but then it depends how much of an input Steve actually had in the writing of the paper. If it was none, then I guess it's kind of okay, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, I thought that was a nice little touch. Steve Owen's a bit of a personal hero, so I was like, that's cool. So yeah, a little bit of a fact about the genus Elsea, which I hadn't personally heard of. On a slightly lighter-hearted note, 
on what has been quite a dire dire podcast really with a lot of negativity and impacts and well there has been there's definitely been some hope there but uh again this is our non-whitewashing the state of wildlife episode i suppose yeah i think it's good next fortnight's episode will be less doom and gloom we promise that pretty much concludes our episode on sea turtles which are enormous majestic giant leviathans of the sea and i think we can all agree pretty superb creatures oh they're fantastic i've lived there for million years and hopefully there to stay for another million well several hundreds million years however long they can keep going why not so yeah if you want to get in touch with us if you've got any questions for us or if you've got ideas for future episodes or or corrections corrections anything we've said today which i'm sure there are some mistakes somewhere yeah. amongst that yeah exactly like we, like we always say when we're not experts we just read it and then talk about it so if you hear something we said wrong let us know if you want to get in touch you can email us um herphighlights at gmail.com you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash herphighlights or just search herpetological highlights and um, we're on twitter um at herphighlights we're getting more active on twitter actually we've been tweeting furiously well that's basically you yeah you're doing a good job there <laughs> I'm addicted to it now. That's terrible. But outside of all those, there's the herphighlights.podbean.com where we put the full list of the show notes or the references we've used in addition to you'll shove up the video of the poor turtle having a straw removed from its its nose and I'll put up the link to the photographs of Deepwater Horizon oil spill, things like that. All the supplementary material is all there, all accessible, so you can go read to your heart's content if you want more grim yeah. turtle research and if you're listening to us on our website then be aware that we're on pretty much every major podcast app so search for us get an app and then you can take us on the go if you so wish well that pretty much concludes our episode on sea turtles thank you very much for listening and we hope you will join us again in two weeks yes thank you for listening